Welcome to the Upside Podcast, powered by Upside Global and hosted by Julian Blinn, founder and CEO of Upside Global. The Upside Podcast is listened to weekly by over 6,000 sports and tech executives from all sports leagues and teams in the United States and around the world. Julian has been developing technologies for professional sports teams for over 10 years and has worked for major tech companies along with sports tech startups. In each episode, Julian interviews global leaders in sports to share knowledge on emerging technology in the sports industry and how these technologies can help improve the performance of individuals and organizations both on and off the playing field. And now here's your host, Julian Blinn. So today we have the honor to interview Dr. Ruben Burst, Director of Athlete Engineering and Associate Professor of Industrial System Engineering at Mississippi State University. So Ruben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me this morning. Great. So uh, Ruben, what I want to talk to you about today is first we'll talk about your background and then we'll go over your role at Mississippi State. And then we'll talk about your favorite technologies, uh, the future of wearables, and then uh, what you wish you could build if you had unlimited resources. So how does it sound? That sounds good to me. Great. So uh, Ruben, so first for the audience, could you tell us about your background? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do that. So um, I, I've been in some some form or fashion of uh, research and development for the past 20 plus years. I was in industry for about 14 years. I, I did uh, a lot of work for uh, naval weapon systems and uh, some NASA satellite work and uh, had had a chance to be a software configuration manager for a very large uh, uh, claims company and yep. uh, where where I really started to get into Physical device prototyping was in at FedEx. I was their engineering principal and was uh, in charge of their ruggedized handheld research. Yeah, I know you said that. Yeah, that's yeah, great. In their, in their autonomous vehicle research program. So it kind of threw me into the world of devices and sensors. And so when I had an opportunity to come to academia, I, I jumped on it and I wanted to uh, create a, a wearable research program that included both engineering and kinesiology just kind of looking yeah. at the landscape at the time back in 2016 there, there wasn't really one yeah uh, and then I'm, I'm a former collegiate athlete so I wanted to try to be the person that you know bridged a good connection between athletics and academics and so that kind yeah. of was was the start of the athlete engineering program that's awesome yeah so um and so how was the transition to go from the industrial space to uh, academia Oh man, everybody yeah. uh, told me what it was going to be like, and, and I still wasn't ready. It, it's definitely a completely different environment. I think I really enjoy being in academia, uh, just yeah. the, the freedom to pursue things that you you believe are important. Not not that you don't get to do that in industry, but you just have a little bit more freedom. Uh, but yeah. I, I'll say I, I appreciate my industry experience more and more every day. I think it's helped me to be a pretty good teacher. Because yeah. I can tell all the students about the, the the terrible ways I screwed up projects, and hopefully yeah. they'll do a better job than me. Yeah. So uh, it it was rough, but you know, just like any system, you gotta you gotta learn it, and once you figure it out, then you can can charge ahead. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, when I uh, you made your I liked your comment about you know in the industrial space or corporate world, you, you I mean you have less an opportunity to uh, work on on your own project. Like I was at, when I was at Google, you know, at Google, like they it's known for you can dedicate 20% of your time on your own projects. But honestly, right. yeah, I had zero time for this. So <laughs> yeah. they, they mean you know? the 20% after 100%. Is what I mean, <laughs> after you're done, when you're going back home at night, yeah, you, you know, 
like 10 o'clock yeah you can work on your own project but no i mean that's right you you get to pick uh which 80 hours during the week you get to work right so that's, that's really nice <laughs> yep uh makes sense uh now could you tell us a bit more about your role at mississippi state like what's your kind of day-to-day -day at mississippi state sure so i i wear uh, a lot of hats here uh first and foremost i i am a professor and so i have uh research teaching and service opportunities just like anybody would at a in an academic institution. So I, I teach a couple of classes a year, uh, most of them related to either human factors, uh, lean methods, or uh, entrepreneurship and intellectual property. Those are kind of my three areas I teach. Um, yeah. the, the, on the research side, uh, we built the athlete engineering program. So, the, uh, so I, I kind of run our athlete engineering research lab. Um, I do a lot of work with robotics now, actually, kind of an odd connection there, but it, it's all tied toward kind of that industrial athlete uh, health, health, uh, happiness, health, and uh, productivity, you know, is what you're shooting for for all your workers. And so uh, automation. So I've, got, I've got a good uh, start for you uh, yeah. off the record, right? I'm in New York about a few months ago. I got a massage by a robotic massage table. So think of like the Tesla robots on the assembly line, but they give you a massage and you can program it. You can change the pressure, everything you want. Uh, it was just amazing. Um, anyway, I can tell you more about that offline, but yeah, that's, that's really, that's really interesting. I, I mean, the, the beauty of academia is it's okay to, to chase things down that rabbit hole when they interest you because you're, yep. you're, you're in an environment that's encouraging to do that. But, uh, but, but I would say, um, Another thing I, I do is I'm the uh, engineering entrepreneurship chair for the university. So I help a lot with our entrepreneurship center and yeah. you know, uh, people looking to do company startups and venture capital and, and things like that. But, but mm -hmm. athlete engineering definitely takes up the, the majority of my time just because that's what most of our funding is through. And most of our team that is, is staffed around that uh, every yeah. human is an athlete concept. And so we, we tend to work, mostly with human performance technologies and, mm -hmm. and even bigger than that, I would say human performance technology adoption. Uh, there, there's yeah. not too many people in the adoption space. Everybody, yeah. uh, once they figure out what tech they want to buy, they, they drop the money on it and then it tends to sit in the box for a few years and not really go anywhere. Uh, so, yeah. so we're trying to be that, that bridge between, so you want to buy a wearable, now it's time to get it on the person. Well, and in fact, I think you're the one that did a, a really good study, right? Uh, I think it was study was about NCA teams. When you found out, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, when you surveyed those NCA teams, 70% of those teams using wearables were using them, but 30% of those NCA teams were not using those wearables that they bought, right? Which to your point, I think one of the reasons was the lack of trust of data and the other factors, right? You, you, yeah, that that was really eye-opening for us. It was it was great on two fronts. It helped us as researchers identify where there's a gap, and the gap was a, a lack of trust in the technology, like you said. Um, you know, but but there's there's an opportunity. Uh, th there was still a lot of interest. You know, so there was a yeah. lack of trust, but still huge interest uh, because everybody sees what they can, and and in some some degree have become. The, the most shocking number is there was a study that came out, I think, late 2021. Yeah. And um, there's there's a prediction that the wearable market is going to be a hundred and thirty billion dollar industry by 2026. You know, so we're not that far. I off. don't think I, I don't think I believe that. I don't know. 
I mean, um, well, that that would include probably even medical devices and anything oh, okay. that you could put in the category of a wearable. So it's a big number, but I think it's pretty broad. But yeah. I, I like to use that number just to show the scale of, of the market. But the, the point of that study was they mm -hmm. said um, out of all wearables invented, only 50% are ever validated in any way, shape or form. Wow. And then it said uh, of the 50%, only half are ever validated by someone who's an unbiased third party. What, what do you think that is? I think there's such a demand for it. I think there's a ton of venture capital money. Everybody's looking to be, you know, everyone's seen the success of other yeah. wearable product out there. Yeah. Uh, I think I think sports and the 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 money behind, you know, competition is, yeah. is driving a lot of that. But but uh, you know, I think and it's the way that sensors have evolved and become so small and, and then the the technology so accessible it creates a really positive ecosystem for people who otherwise maybe wouldn't have been able to come up with a yeah. new idea and create a product. Yeah. I, I think that with wearables, the only limitation is your own creativity in most cases. So yeah. I think, I think we've seen a really, a really positive impact um, with accessibility for creation mm -hmm. through the, the wearable market. But with that, you also have a bunch of people designing things for a task or activity that they themselves may have never performed. Or yeah. been a practitioner in, which then goes back to that trust issue we found in the study. So, you know, I, I'm an engineer, so I, I'm allowed to poke fun at engineers. So if you know, if yeah. I'm some engineer who developed something out of my garage for sports, but I never actually played sports or talked to a strength coach or even physically done the movement myself, uh, you know, just because I read a bunch of kinesiology te textbooks and I understand the basics for my, you know, AI algorithm and neural network training, it doesn't mean that I built anything needed. I may have mm -hmm. built something cool, but cool doesn't have longevity. Uh, needed has longevity, right? Yeah, but, you know. So I also I was going to ask you, uh, how closely do you work with the the sports teams at Mississippi State? But also because I, when I talk to Josh, right from from uh, Ohio State, that you know, uh, every year he goes to the NFL Combine and he's got a relationship with all those teams and he wants to understand what are their needs, how he can help them research and all that do you have the same kind of relationship or setting with professional teams as well so on the on the mississippi state side i, I serve as kind of the liaison between all the sports teams and the athletic side and yeah and, and it's this isn't the only university that we do uh some work with but i had i would say i probably don't have as don't have the breadth of relationships that jo josh does yeah. across the, the pro teams but i've got uh, specific teams that I work with across NFL, NBA, MLB, you know, all, the different, all the different uh, pro leagues. And and a lot of times for me, it's usually with the strength coaches directly. Yep. And you you uh, you have strength coaches these days who are uh, the best researcher you would ever meet. Yeah, uh, I think they could probably. Well, I know one of them, team. one of your colleagues, I think, Bill Burgos. Right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, you so know, he's great. Yeah. 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 So Bill is great. So pe people like uh, Bill Burgos, uh, Anthony Proley, Ted Rath, Adam Petway, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, all, all those different guys. I can name a really long list. They're, yeah. they're the ones that have helped teach me. Uh, I'd like to think that I've kind of taught them maybe a little bit about the, the thinking process of engineers yeah. and human factors and, and how that works well in, in their mm -hmm. environment. And then and then that's the type of information we get to bring to our students and yeah. create a really positive student pipeline of 
people now, you know, experienced in the craft and ready to go work for wearable companies or pro teams or other colleges or or it, sometimes we're lucky enough to get them to stay with us. Yeah. Uh, so, but what yeah. what what do what are the biggest needs when you talk to let's say you said NBA team NFL teams, what are the biggest needs when they come to you? I, trust trust is still an issue, so I think okay. uh, validation, so some standardization of validation for wearable technology against accepted laboratory gold standards. Yeah. So when a wearable says it's capable of doing X, regardless of what X is, how how uh, strongly can you trust it and put your faith in it? Because yes. wearables wearables will never replace, they will never replace a practitioner, a strength coach, a health and safety yeah. engineer. They're meant yeah. to be a, a decision tool aid. And so if you put a lot of faith and finances into a tool and there's still some type of question of, about the quality of that data, uh, yeah. maybe maybe you trust it some of the time and not all the time, you know, that's still, still an issue. So yeah. I, as long as there's not some type of standardized approach, there's, we're going to struggle, uh, in, in this adoption space. And as long as there's what appears to be infinite venture capital willing to pump money into these companies, mm -hmm. there's no need for them to be standardized. They're going to continue to come up with their own term of load management and different yeah. loads and you know and some of them are spot on and and really good and will tell you how they do it and some of them it's just mm -hmm. a black box uh you know so i think that's probably the biggest concern i hear yeah and I, you know so i work with a bunch of wearable tech companies i'm not going to name you know who they are but and i was bringing those technologies to the club the teams right nba team and and mlf uh, nfl team and so on sometimes i've come across some really interesting companies wearable technology companies but I've had instances where um, the executives had no idea how to work with teams. They had no idea how to collaborate. They didn't know the workflow. Um, sometimes the technology was just too expensive. Sometimes um, there was no science. There was no research behind it, right? So there's a lot. In fact, we actually wrote a piece on that. What are the most, uh, the best practices when you want to go and sell your technology to teams? Uh, but it's very common. And, and uh, depending on the background of the founder of those startups, uh, you got mixed experiences, right? If it's a former athlete trainer uh, who built a wearable device, of course he's going to know how to sell it, how to position it to the teams, right? But sometimes right. these are just engineers or they have no idea how the, the, the elite world uh, just works, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's the same across all uh, industry verticals. So if you're if you're a former elite athlete, you, you're at least part of the family. Yep. And whether you're the best at speaking the language or not, and how long you've been removed, you, you at least get a, a an initial pass to have a conversation. Yeah, uh, the, the same thing is true. We find uh, everybody on our team played some role outside of academia before they came here. So we've got mm -hmm. former, you know, elite uh, athletes. We've got former industry people. We've got former military people, former medical, uh, former yep. political people. And so yep. they're they're able to get their foot in the door because they at one time were were part of the part of the family. And so, which getting your foot in the door is a really critical first step because every mm -hmm. vertical is a small family, but it, it's a matter of what you do with it once you get their attention because you generally only get like one chance. Well, that's it. I mean, but then once you've got a sh one shot, like you said, and if you screw it up for many reasons, whether you don't understand how they work or you didn't show up on time or you know what I mean. Then that's all oh. you've got, right? So. Yeah, 
Yeah. And then because it's a small family, word gets out that you didn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then yeah. it's pretty, then you're toast. Like the we, word goes uh, out. Yeah. Pretty quickly. Yeah. All the trainers will know. <laughs> so. that, that's right. Yeah. All um, we, we have wearables will show up on wearable companies. They'll show up on campus here. Yeah. And we, we usually will have a sit down between members of our team and uh, certainly a lot of the strength coaches. And you'll have a wearable that will go, a wearable company go through their sales pitch and say, we're here and we're going to uh, prevent all injuries. And, and we're like, all right, you know, my, you know, thank you for your time. Might as well yeah. show you the yeah. door. There's, there's no prevention of injuries. There's, there's mitigation of injuries, but you can be the healthiest person on the planet and still have your ankle rolled. Uh, so, and, and a wearable is not going to stop that. Again, a, a wearable is an informational tool. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the practitioner is still required and bad things can still happen no matter how much you've planned. So, yeah. So if for the people who show up talking about how there's going to be no more injuries at Mississippi State, we're, we're happy to, you know, thank well, you. That's a red flag. I think it's and, a red flag already. Um, yeah. uh, I, I, so what, as far as that comment, I've seen uh, companies, software and hardware companies, <clears throat> moving, moving away from saying prevent injuries, but they will say reduce injuries to help reduce injuries because, you know, I, I was talking to your team the other day and they said, nobody, no technology can help prevent injuries. Nobody, nobody can right. do that. Yeah. So, re re reduced injuries is probably a uh, better marketing than saying uh, mitigate because we, yeah. you know, we, they, the university wanted to make a little commercial for us one time and they kept sending me the script and, and they kept saying prevent and I kept striking through it and saying mitigate. Yeah. And you said no, no normal person uses the word mitigate. So I think we agreed to reduce his injuries just so that we could be done with it. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but you're right. So they're getting a little bit more uh, tactful on on the wording they choose, but you know, wording matters. Yep, that makes total sense. Hey, um, one of my other questions for you was, could you talk about maybe some of the best practices uh, in the areas of uh, athlete engineering and maybe even factor, but really athlete engineering, if you may. There's, there's some fundamental things that we've really latched onto uh, in terms of kind of best practices, especially since we work across not just sports, you know, we have the industrial athlete, the tactical yeah. athlete and the at-risk athlete, which would be like telehealth, telemedicine, rehab, yeah. rehab kind of thing. And, uh, and again, this comes from the people who, you know, who taught me and their primary uh, points of interest, and that's symmetry. Yeah. Uh, so, so a lot of the technologies and studies we do are largely, you know, symmetry or asymmetry focused, uh, yeah. you know, you, in the elite athlete world, you have, uh, people who are extremely asymmetrical. A lot of times that asymmetry is what makes them elite. You know, usually think about like baseball and softball pitchers and stuff like that. One side of their body is clearly different than the other. And that's what that becomes their strength, but you, you become too asymmetrical and then you're a constant injury risk. So there's yeah. kind of like a, a fine line in there, uh, but but it's not just sports that that applies to, uh, you know, in Mississippi, uh, our biggest injury uh, industries are uh, manufacturing, uh, logistics, uh, warehousing, things like that. So repetitive yeah. motion task, uh, assembler workers, things like that, people who yeah. go to work and do a job and repeat that job 100 to 1000 times in an eight hour yeah. shift, yeah. those people are elite in the repetitive tasks that they're doing mm -hmm. uh, the risk is you know they, they're the two most common injury types are an overuse injury of their dominant side or some under some uh non-dominant sprain for when they decide to use the other the other arm so 
working with uh, partners like uh, Toyota and other companies, you know, they're really focused on becoming ambidextrous. Yeah. Uh, just like an, an elite athlete might need to be in some circumstances. And then, of course, you know, we work with the Air Force and, you know, we have the Columbus Air Force Base, which is, uh, believe it or not, the most active airport in the world mm -hmm. because of how many uh, flights and test flights they do. And, you know, so pilots, uh, it's pretty much guaranteed that if they're uh, flying, a, a you know, some type of fighter uh, form factor aircraft that they're going to, you know, get a neck and upper back injury. So. Uh, so, so symmetry for us is a great indicator of how a new recruit may be able to perform. Uh, it, it, existing student athletes uh, may be at risk of an injury. Uh, people on an assembly line uh, may be six months out from having to go on FEMLA leave if they don't learn how to use their non-dominant arm or yeah. keep, keeping our warfighters, you know, active and healthy and, and more importantly, healthy after, you know, life and service. So it, it's, it's so common across everybody that it's kind of eaten up a lot of our focus lately. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, on that point, uh, and I work for some companies, we start where about tech companies, right? They study in sports, working with teams. And then after that, they start working with uh, industrial companies, right? Oil and gas, construction, mining companies, because like you said, uh, they're dealing with industrial athletes. We have, you know, same issues, right? Uh, back injury, injuries, and they have to find a way to, pre to uh, reduce those injuries, right? So um, it's a natural transition, I think. That's um, right. You know, the the typical, you know, we, we teach macro ergonomics here, which is the study of team and corporate culture. And again, the the main takeaway of all the all that class material is you, you want to keep your your athletes, your employees, your workers, whatever they are, happy, healthy and effective. And so that, you know, yeah. you can't just be two of the three and think it's sustainable you have to be three of those all three of those things to to achieve you know optimal success yeah yeah and i mean there's big you know implication with osha right osha i mean those those big companies get fined like millions of dollars every year because they don't they don't document all the injuries and all that but that's another topic of discussion but um so there's big implications right but absolutely absolutely um, so, uh, could you talk about some of your favorite technologies uh, in the world of human performance? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd say I gave a pretty good hint on some of them. Uh, there are a lot of the wearable companies that we work with that, that do give us symmetry yeah. uh, in some form or fashion, whether it's like, like muscle load, whether it's uh, bone impact, uh, yeah. whether it's being able to look at the delta between you know, right arm versus left arm use. Uh, at, at the end of the day, we were taught by some of the best in the world that uh, you can do you can do and learn just about anything with a pair of force plates. Yeah. Uh, and so we we still you know utilize those a, a whole lot. You know, a, a counter movement jump and a mid thigh pull will tell you so much about anybody. Yeah. You know, from, from a lower body, you know, that that closed kinetic chain of the lower body to the to the upper body with the the mid thigh pull things like that. So yeah, uh, it's it, we as much as we keep learning about new technologies and getting a chance to test them for these companies and getting our hands on with them, uh, those things uh, really fascinate us. Uh, there's there's some newer technology, and we actually did a lot of work back in the autonomous vehicle days because uh, a lot of my team uh, that, who's on my team now helped me with those projects back when I was still in industry. But, you yeah. know, ra radar and LIDAR-based uh, technologies now that are working their way into sports Mm -hmm. really fascinating just because you know we we tried a bunch of stuff with them in the lab and always kind of felt like a pipe dream and they've been able to turn that in, into something 
really exciting. Um, yeah. Our favorite sensors, and again, we're biased, but it's what we were funded by the National Science Foundation to, to use, but, uh, you know, stretch and soft sensor technology, uh, uh -huh. things that can seamlessly be embedded into textiles yeah. and can be used to replace uh, things like motion capture. Uh -huh. So you can, you can, and that's kind of what we've been working on and other companies uh, like Liquid Wire have done a really successful job there too, but, uh, you know, kind of building a uniform that can replace the need for motion capture without yep. the sensation of wearing a bunch of sensors on you yep. uh, because they're perfectly linear when you stretch them and they're like either capacitive or resistive based. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and those things were invented for other purposes, like uh, stretch sensors were invented for exoskeletons to be kind of a, a uh, synthetic form of you know muscle muscle yeah. stretch to indicate how much the exosuit has moved um so it you know fi finding technologies that were originally intended for something else and then uh have having them find a home in the human performance world i think uh can continues to fascinate us so i think those are a lot of the technologies we're drawn to yeah and by the way do you know of a company uh, called nextiles that be that put sensors into the fabric next time yeah yeah so they they have the the pressure sensors in the yes. bottom of the foot they they won that that nba uh that's correct yep. yeah. I, I know them well yeah mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. so um, that's that's another great example of you're you're wearing you're wearing something and you can't really detect the sensors in it because the sensors are soft yeah. the the sensors are antimicrobial they're moisture wicking uh mm -hmm. you know they're, they're they have properties that the original IMU users would have probably would have not thought about a few years ago, but are now super yep. critical because there's nothing like having a sensor pressed against your skin and then you That's remove right. it and realize you have a massive rash, right? Everyone yep. looks. That's exactly right. Um, I, I like, I mean, I like them a lot. I think they're great, great team. And I think that's what you described, kind of the future of wearables, right? Embedded into the fabric. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So next question is, it's kind of a, a segue. So. What do you think is the future of biosensors and advanced wearables, right? So I worked for companies, for example, in the past where we build like contactless biosensors to measure uh, blood pressure without any contact to the skin, for example. Uh, I also work with some other companies that build sensors uh, that can measure uh, in one sensor, right? A patch, uh, they can measure lactate, glucose, uh, electrolyte uh, level into one patch. Um, so, and I think that's fascinating, right? Uh, to see what those companies can do. So what, what do you think is the future of wearables or biosensors? On, on, the, on the physiology front, I think, I think you nailed what, what really is the, the very near future, right? I mean, those things are not that far away. Yeah. I think the, 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 the lead time, the, the long pole in the tent for a lot of those is probably FDA approval processes. Yeah. Uh, but well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, and they're they're already in the in the pipeline for that. And yeah. and being in Mississippi, you know, believe it or not, uh, there's the University of Mississippi Medical Center, which is has the world's largest research center in telehealth, telerehab. And the reason is because uh, for people that have been to Mississippi, it's extremely rural and it's a different kind of rural. Meaning, like you can drive for a few hours and there are no yeah. people. There's just trees, huh. right? So, so, uh, so the, a lot of, you know, we have a small population that's scattered across the state. And so medical care uh, yeah. can be really difficult to, to come across. And so it, yeah. it makes sense that we would have that research center. So, yeah. so every, everything you listed is going to be, be able to help not just people in Mississippi, but, you know, a lot of the world 
yeah. is rural like that. So you're going to be able to bring healthcare at a level uh, that's previously not been affordable or you know uh, feasible. Uh, when when I think of uh, kind of future technology and wearables, we we do a lot on the biomechanics side. We we have some of the world leaders in slip, trip, and fall and foot ankle research here on campus, and so that's kind of the the area where a lot of our research is because gate and uh, the information that comes from gate, the fact that gate is unique, like a fingerprint for everybody. Uh, yep. you know, there's a lot of value in that on both the the, the athletic training and the medical side. Um, but yep. when I think about the future of wearables, I, I put on my former industry hat. And if you think about the evolution of manufacturing equipment, mm -hmm. uh, you manufacturing equipment at, over time has begun to imitate features of humans, right? So, you know, when you think about automation, collaborative robots, the robots you discussed talking about giving a massage, mm -hmm. you know, so, so the technology evolved to more closely mirror humans to do the jobs that humans would prefer not to do because they're, yeah. they're boring, they're dangerous, uh, they have to be precise. But I think the evolution is coming full circle in that we're just like we have preventative maintenance on machines, we're now in the world where we have preventative maintenance on humans. That's correct, yeah. And, and so I think the future of wearables is the the sensors that can be integrated into uniforms like PPE, personal protective equipment. Yeah, of course, yeah. You know, so I think we're, we will see an evolution in PPE type stuff. But I think the future of wearables is going to be a combination of non-invasive uh, sensors that can be embedded and markerless motion capture. Yeah, in fact, it's funny you said PPE because when I was working for this wearable tech company, uh, a few years ago, we had a, a sensor uh, using microfluidics to measure hydration, dehydration, heat stress, right? So mm -hmm. one of the things that we we, we actually approached uh, one of the largest PPE vendor, maybe the biggest, and they wanted to uh, work with us, you know, to embed the sensors into the PPE. So, uh, and that was like five years ago, I think. So uh, I think it's definitely a big trend. And And in fact, I would say that many of the wearable tech companies who studied in sports, Let's say, for example, Whoop, right? Whoop, they had the Whoop band. They're using HRV. Now, from what I know, they're they're really focusing also, they were focusing on enterprise, industrial, right? Because why? Mm -hmm. They realized that that's such a huge opportunity, right? As opposed to equipping an NFL roster of 90 players, they can equip a thousand workers, right? So that's a huge opportunity. But, you know, there's more regulation. There's OSHA guy, you know, OSHA uh, regulation and all that. So, but once you get there, that's a huge opportunity, right? It, it is, and that that's, uh, it, it makes us happy to be focused on the adoption side because, again, you know, uh, like when I when I worked at FedEx, we uh, did a lot of research out at the Memphis Hub, which generally has about 20,000 employees. And so when a wearable company would hear about my role there and they'd reach out, in their eyes, they envision they're about to sell 20,000 units. But the reality is yeah. um, they they are not <laughs> yeah. because you're – when you're dealing with an environment where, uh, and there's a term that's called the, the user is not the chooser. Yeah. Uh, like there's all these technology adoption models that exist throughout, you know, academic literature. And they're all focused on the assumption that the person who puts on the device or uses the technology made that decision to do so. Uh, the, the reality is when you start talking about the industry side, the, the tactical side, uh, a lot of times those people have no say in uh, in what technologies they use. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you're, uh, it could be perceived that you're collecting a lot of data on their personal privacy, uh, yep. there, there's big brother concerns. And so again, there's, there's all these vast dreams that 
these wearable companies because they have a great product they're just going to be able yeah. to get it out to the user it, and and oftentimes they don't even get past the price point negotiation yeah uh, some some places that have been more successful is when they built wearables into kind of their insurance package where they there's it's, it's incentive based and people get paid to use it or yeah. they have a lower you know insurance cost but even mm -hmm. still you're not getting a hundred percent adoption you're maybe getting 10 to 20 percent max and and that's probably more in a like a desk job type type environment more so than like assembler workers yeah. so everybody just gets over the moon thinking that they're about to drop you know tens or hundreds of thousands of units and the reality is is it, you know that they're going to do a pilot rollout and they're going to find that everybody accidentally lost their device or left it at home or yeah in some cases with some of the equipment we we would try to roll out be new we find a bunch of units in the garbage can because change is hard and people don't like it yeah i mean uh, yeah so when i was working with this wearable tech company and we had this hydration sensor to measure heat stress uh, i can tell you that you know our strategy was we'll do a pilot with 35 employees right and then we'll stop and then we did it in phases, right? And eventually we got into an enterprise deployment, but it was very hard for us to go, you know, you can't go straight in there and say, hey, I want to deploy 100 devices on workers. It just doesn't work that way. Um, it, it, so, it doesn't. Yeah, it we, doesn't. we call it the uh, the 18 month dating period from the point yeah. in which people who control the money say, we're absolutely going to do this. You've at least got 18 months before anything actually happens. And that's a fairly common number at least based on our experience on the industry side and yeah and, and possibly longer that's a that's a very that's a very nice number it can take longer. yeah yeah uh and and then your comment on privacy right privacy data privacy uh when i was working for google i was actually involved in a project where i was trying to come up with a, a wearable data privacy label meaning that the idea was when you go and buy a wearable device just like you have a, your label for about the ingredients when you buy some food right the idea was to have a wearable data privacy label so you would know it would tell you on the label what data is being shared what data is being provided tracked and all that which i thought was a great idea so uh, but i think it's going to be key right for any wearables to be adopted because you have to be transparent and and i've seen many times wearable tech companies they they'll disclose they'll say yeah we collect the data we share it we'll resell it to maybe advertising companies but it's kind of if you don't read the labels and the details, you will never know, right? Yeah, that that's right. And 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 most people don't read the labels or or read the three page long text before they click I accept. You know. Yeah. Uh, but I think one of the the things that we found uh, when we have had success in in adoption and implementation is there needs to be some unbiased third party that gets to look at the data, and uh, and that person probably needs to be like a health and safety engineer or yeah. someone who's completely removed from the management chain has no control over uh you know who who remains at the company or who gets fired or raises or anything like that and then whenever yeah. they share yeah. re reports it's aggregate data and not individualized data and the only time anyone ever gets called out is when they're really are at risk of hurting themselves and it's more uh you know again a preventive maintenance situation and not a performance situation as soon as you tie that wearable data to performance and then you, then you're going to have an uprising on your hands so they just need to be strategic and who gets access yeah that's a good point um hey last question um if you had unlimited resources right money engineering staff what types of technology would you build and why 
I, I, I think I would continue what we're doing in creating technology that's that can collect clinical level data, but make it accessible for people who don't have huge budgets. So okay. what, what I mean by that is uh, here's here's a good example of something that currently exists, uh, but I would want to you know build on it more. Uh, like we work with the Southwest Research Institute, and they have, in our opinion, the best markerless motion capture we've ever seen. And in, in, in a setup that really gets us, really gets us what we need from a biomechanical analysis perspective, uh, a setup for that, just based on the the hardware, is like a maybe like a ten thousand uh, dollar purchase, maybe a twenty thousand to have a really robust, you know, versus the you know half million dollar system of of the marker, you know, technologies uh, that you know takes me thirty minutes to set up. Uh, things can go horribly wrong. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. So I think I, I would, I like the idea of human performance is too big to be selfish. Uh, there's still so much we can learn and everybody brings, you know, something new to the table. If, if, if I could have unlimited money and staff, I would probably invest all my time trying to build some type of, you know, integrated sensor uniform uh, markerless combination that allows any practitioner to have a state-of-the-art clinical solution that is cost available versus you know what we have today so i think yeah. I, I think i'd really focus on that because there's some really great people out there who aren't able to contribute uh, as much as they could if they had the technology so making making it so that the technology allows us to collect trustworthy clean solid data sets that are then used uh, to do to provide the neural network training for all these other wearables. So we we can get past this space where only 25% of a $130 billion market are validated. That's a very good point. Yeah, I think, look, for example, right, the Apple Watch, it's a great wearable, but it's not cheap, right? Not everybody has 250 bucks, 300 bucks to buy an Apple Watch today. So That's right. Yeah, the Apple Watch is probably like the single most validated wearable in the in the yeah. world, but you know, you're not going to find it in certain parts of the world or certain parts of the country because of the, the cost barrier. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, look, we, we at the end of the interview, but I want to thank you for, for your time today. Great insight. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This, this is a good time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to access past episodes and other research articles and analysis of sports technology. Please visit our website, theupside.us. Subscribe to the Upside newsletter and receive full access to our sports tech business letter and website. Royalty-free music is provided by ibaudio.com. The Upside podcast provides timely insights and interviews with global leaders in sports technology. Until next time, keep looking to the Upside.